Um, we're currently in the middle of a study of John's Gospel. We find ourselves this morning in the middle of John 10. I'm going to read this morning verses 27 to 30. And I am certain that if you are a true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find these verses to be the most, most assuring verses in all of the Bible regarding your salvation and the security of that salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. I begin in verse 27, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Please join me in prayer as we begin. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the promises of your word. And as we enter in here to these most reassuring verses of Scripture, I want to pray for your church this morning. And Lord, I ask that there would be a, a deep-rooted um, building up of assurance within the saints today. And I pray for anyone who struggles with the security or assurance of their salvation that today would seal it, that this would be a text that they would go back to continually to rest on the authority of Scripture and the convincing work of the Holy Spirit within us. For anyone here this morning, Father, who perhaps thinks that they're in and they're indeed not in, they make a cheap profession of faith with their mouth but are not true born-again believers, I ask this morning that your spirit would do a work that would cause them to be born again, that you would bring them to true saving faith. By your grace alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for the believer, for the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, sinner saved by grace, I don't believe there's anything that more steadies the helm of life that enables us in the midst of trials, tribulations, and temptations as we live in a, the midst of a Christ-rejecting world than the doctrine of eternal security, otherwise known as the preservation of the saints, or also known as the perseverance of the saints. And that's the doctrine that's in view here this morning, verses 27 to 30. And what this glorious doctrine teaches us is that it is God alone who saves, and not only is it God who saves, but it is God who will bring us to the end. He will bring you to the finish line, which is glory. You will enter into His presence. You will see Him face to face. If indeed you're born again by the Spirit of God, by grace, you will enter into heaven. To those who've been justified by faith, which means to be declared free from all blame, by the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, you are washed, you are cleansed, you are purified, you are justified, you are sanctified, you are clothed in the robes of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a guarantee that those who are justified will indeed be glorified. In other words, those who are truly born again of the Spirit will for certain reach the glorious throne of grace. They cannot fall away. They will not be fooled, nor will they be led astray. Nor can they forfeit their salvation. That is an impossibility. Because such a life in Christ is everlasting life. And something that's everlasting is what? Everlasting. It is eternal. And if it's eternal, it can never be forfeited. It can never be lost. And as a believer, I encourage you to take heed, to follow along, and I pray, and I have prayed, that you will be encouraged in the faith that God has granted you by grace alone. Paul, the apostle, he gives a very clear portrait 
as to the unbreakable circle of salvation. In Romans 8.29, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also what? Called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also, what is it? Glorified. Now, that text, Romans 8, contains a series of aorist verbs that signify past action. Notice, the word foreknew. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called, past tense. Those he called, he justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. All past tense. The final verb there, glorified, is it's what's known as a proleptic aorist, which is the demonstration of a future act as though it was already accomplished. It's as good as done. It's finished. It's sealed. If you're justified, you will be glorified. So in other words, it's to be so certain of its occurrence that it is viewed as, a, as, as something past, with all certainty. And this is the clear promise of those who possess eternal life. Not who merely profess with their mouth, but who possess eternal life. And if you possess eternal life, that means Almighty God possesses you. He owns you. He resides in you. You have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a child of God, never to be lost. And what we'll witness this morning is God's initiative in preserving His saints, His predestined, chosen before the foundation of the earth, saints. Which are sinners saved by grace. If you're a Christian, born again a Christian, the Bible refers to you as a saint. We're saints because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God promises to preserve his own. The Psalms respect, uh, reflect that faithfulness, the faithfulness of God who preserves the believer to the end. In Psalm 37, it teaches God's guardianship over those that are his. In chapter 37, verse 24, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand and does not forsake his saints. In Psalm 73, we see the recorded words as to the confidence of Asaph. Psalm 73, verse 23, You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to a, to glory. The Old Testament prophets related the believer's security to the new covenant promises. In Jeremiah 32, verse 40, says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Whose will is the object of focus there? God's will. I will make. I will not turn away. I will put my fear within them. Has his will been made known to you? Is the question this morning. Do you know the will of God in a salvific sense? In the sense of being a sinner saved by grace? Do you understand you're justified? Do you possess eternal life? And does he possess you? That's the question that I posed this morning before we begin. And for those of you that are born again, children of God, I trust that these words will assure you and hopefully encourage you in times of doubt and discouragement. When you do fall, it's a guarantee you will, we all will, when you do fall and you do stumble, that you will rest on the truth of Scripture regarding your salvation. But however, if you simply make a cheap profession of faith with your mouth and you're not a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have prayed that you'll be cut to the core this morning. That you'll be convicted of your sin in light of the absolute holiness of God. And that by His grace, He'll reach you today through the authority of His Word. But let's take a look now at what precedes these great promises revealed for us in verses 27 to 30. And we're going to go back to verse 22. That's where we left off last time. Notice verse 22. 
It says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, if you've been with us, you know that John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, and John chapter 10 up to verse 21 is just a little over a one-week period of time. Jesus, once he entered into the Feast of Tabernacles in in chapter 7, is an eight, nine-day period of time. When we get to verse 22, we jump ahead two months. Feast of Tabernacles is in October. The Feast of Dedications of dedication or the Feast of Lights is held in December. The word winter means literally it was wintry cold. The feast, which commemorates purification of the temple, a rededication of the temple by one by the name of Judas Maccabeus and his brothers and his sons, many relatives, in that day began a revolt. Revolution took place, known as the Maccabean Revolt. And what this commemorates is great heroism in the history of Judaism. And what they were rebelling against was the cruel domain of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of Syria. And the king of Syria loved Greek culture. He loved everything Greek. And he endeavored to advance everywhere the luster of the Greek culture. He was attempting to Hellenize all of Palestine. And along with this endeavor to Hellenize Palestine, he also was attempting to wipe out all of Judaism. And to Hellenize means to make Greek in form or and in culture. And in a multi-volume history, a set of history books I have titled The History of the Jewish People, it records the following, quote, Antiochus gave orders to Hellenize Jerusalem thoroughly. The Jewish population, which would not yield, was treated with great barbarity. The men were killed. The women and children sold into slavery. Who was, who was, whoever was able escaped from the city. Jerusalem was to be henceforth a Greek city. The observance of all Jewish rites, especially of Sabbath and circumcision, were forbidden on the pain of death. End quote. Now, under Epiphanes, if any Jew were found possessing a copy of the book of the law, they were put to death. If any woman was caught circumcising her male child, they'd crucify her and then hang her children around her neck. So Antiochus was really an an Adolf Hitler type of figure, ruthlessly slaughtering the Jewish people at this time. He also desecrated the temple. He butchered a pig on the altar of the holy temple, sacrificed it to the Greek god Zeus in the month of Chislu, which is December 168 B.C. This is the abomination of desolation prophesied in Daniel as, as far as its near future fulfillment goes. And Tychus also turned the temple chambers into courts of prostitution. Blatant fornication throughout the temple. And that was just some of the evil committed by this blasphemer, by this tyrant. And it was in response to this barbaric evil that a hero arose. Judas the Maccabee. Judas Maccabeus. And he formed this guerrilla-like band of warriors, much of which were made up of his family, brothers and sons and distant relatives. And in 164 BC, the Maccabeans defeated this tyrant, and which is the type of Antichrist here. And after the victory, the, the temple was cleansed according to Levitical law. They, they rebuilt the altar, the uh, altar, they replaced utensils, they replaced the robes, they replaced the furniture. And then three years to the day that the swine was slaughtered on the altar, they set into motion this triumphal victory in the month of Chislu, December 165 B.C. And then the festivities lasted for eight days. 
And it was resolved that every year this celebration would take place to commemorate this great revolt and this great victory. This is known as the Feast of Dedications, the Feast of Lights, and we know it today as, as Hanukkah. So it was a joyous feast, and they would illumine the temple with, with these mini torches. And today in December, if you know any Jews who celebrate Hanukkah, they'll line their windows with lights, or they'll light candles during that great celebration. So Hanukkah is a memorial to the purification of the temple from that profane desecration. And it was that time of the year, in the cold of winter, that Jesus comes back into the temple as it was wintry cold. In verse 23, he walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was a colonnade. It had 40-foot high pillars, and it was uh, roofed over. So in the summer, it would protect you from the blazing heat of the sun, and in the winter, it would cut off some of the, the cold. And they would have lamps lit in there. It made it a little warmer. And there's Jesus walking through Solomon's porch. And then in verse 24, at that moment, then the Jews surrounded him. Now, the Jews being referred to here, for the most part, are unbelieving, hard-hearted religious leadership known as the Pharisees, the ones that Jesus has been dealing with us up to this point. Now, to surround him, the verb means to encircle. It means to gather around or to hem in. It's a picture of intense confrontation. So he was ringed by his enemies. In modern vernacular, it would be to say that they were in his face. And then they said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. How long will you keeping, keep us hanging in the air, is what they ask. Now, they already knew, these Pharisees, they already knew that they could not escape the fact that the miracles of Jesus were much more than human. They knew that. They never denied that. As a matter of fact, back in John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee himself, came and he was basically representing the Sanhedrin that day, and he said this, We, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It was evident that his miracles, that his signs, that his wonders were, were miraculous. But not only did they not realize that his miracles lead to something greater than themselves, which was the truth of Scripture, at the same time they were aware that, they were aware that his teaching was authoritative, much more so than any rabbi that ever taught. In John 7, verse 15, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus taught there in the temple, it says the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, the people, it says, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So you had signs, miracles, and wonders, as well as authoritative teaching. They recognized this. It was obvious. But what troubled them was that Jesus gave no hint of political goals. He never addressed national Israel in terms of imminent freedom from the, the bondage of Rome. He never formally presented himself as Messiah. So they pressed him, and they wanted a clear answer. We want to know. But had Jesus told them plainly? Had Jesus used clear, unambiguous terms? They would have misunderstood him all the more. What they had in mind was a military-like legislative Messiah. They were not looking for the suffering servant. Scripture was clear that the Messiah would be the suffering servant. He would come to bear the sins of of believers throughout the world. And they missed him. They were looking for immediate relief from social, political, and economic problems. They were looking for someone who was beyond a Judas Maccabeus. 
This is the relief they wanted, temporal relief. Sounds like, much like America today, a bunch of whiners and complainers. It sounds much like the evangelical church today, unfortunately. Come on, somebody. Come on. Hopefully God's working that out of us. But as a whole, when you look at the church, they want blessing now, materially, that which is tangible, rather than understanding the spiritual blessings that God has granted those who are in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been gifted to those who are in Christ. So Jesus answers them, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. You see, the reason Jesus did not fit their preconceived ideas of Messiah was because of their ignorance to biblical truth. They did not know what the meaning of Scripture was. They knew what the Scripture said. They did not know what the Scripture means by what it says. When wise men came from the east, when Jesus was born, Herod was beside himself. He was in fear. So he calls the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, where is he that is to be born king of the Jews? Because that's exactly what the wise men from the east were asking. Where is he? Where is he? In a continual sense, where is he to be born king of the Jews? The Pharisees knew the answer. He's to be born in Bethlehem. But they missed him. Certainly they knew what the scripture said, but they missed him. Isaiah 35.5 is something they should have known. Then the eyes of the blind shall be what? Opened. We witnessed this in John 9. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So, again, had they known what the Word of God meant by what it said and then believed it, they would have recognized Jesus and embraced Him as who He was, Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. But we see the same dilemma today. Many people will sit in churches under poor teaching, unfortunately. They will remain steeped in ignorance. They're responsible for that but even more responsible for that is the responsibility of those who stand in places like this who are supposed to teach their flock the Word of God. So when those dear people come into a place and they go visit a church that does teach sound doctrine, when they hear something for the first time like they've never heard it before, their first reaction is to be defensive. Not realizing that they're being introduced for perhaps the first time the meaning of Scripture. So they back off. And they don't want to hear it because their preconceived notions about who God is and what God has done and what God wants to do don't match up with what the Scripture clearly says. They had preconceived notions as to who the Messiah was and what the Messiah was to do. May our notions always be lined up with Scripture, amen? So, Jesus' credentials of Messiahship were His signs and miracles as prophesied in the Scriptures. Again, what is a sign? What's the meaning of a sign? The purpose of a sign, it points you to something what? Greater than itself. The signs, the miracles of Jesus were to point forward to who he was. He was the fulfillment of the prophets and of the scribes. Jesus referred to this very group in John chapter 9 verse 41 is the spiritually blind. You know, you think you see, but because you think you see, you will be made blind. Now, if you were blind, if you realized you really don't see, then you would be made to see. And not only are you blind, in John chapter 10, verse 1, he called them thieves and robbers, those who come to fleece the flock. Heavy accusations by the Lord here. If you remember back in chapter 5, when Jesus here healed the paralytic by the pool, he referred to his signs and miracles as being from the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 36, is for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And here now in verse 25, he continues, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. You teachers of the law should know this. You should be able to properly identify me but because of your hardened, willful unbelief, you're going to be judged in your sin. 
So Jesus charges them with unbelief because they refuse the evidence of what? The living word of God. They refuse the authoritative prophetic truth of Scripture regarding the coming one, the Messiah, the Savior, God in human flesh. But Jesus goes on to get to the foundation of their unbelief. Verse 26. This is, this is the real reason for their unbelief. This is the true reason for anyone's unbelief. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Now, Jesus reverts to his discourse two months earlier. Jesus just picks up where he left off with them in the temple courts. Verse 21. You aren't mine, is what he says. That is why you don't believe. Notice, verse 26 does not read, because you don't believe, therefore you're not my sheep. It does not read that. What it reads is, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. You're not mine. This would be offensive to a Jew. If he was proclaiming to be Messiah, he's saying that, look, you're not of my flock, which is simply to say, even though you're of the lineage of Jewish descent going back to Abraham, you're not in. Just because of your connection with Abraham does not guarantee you an in. Just like baptism, baptism doesn't guarantee the professing Christian an in. Nor does confirmation, reciting a creed, responding to some altar call. That's no ticket to heaven. That is no guarantee of salvation. Any more so than being of the line of Abraham as a Jew was. They were guilty. They were not his sheep. Called by the great shepherd. Therefore, they did not believe. Now, that's the introduction. Now we move in here to... Jesus focusing upon his sheep, those that are his. And here now we see the preserving grace of the good shepherd and the perseverance of those that are his. Now notice this in verse 27. It says, my sheep, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Notice what we see here. We see, first of all, three points. We see an authoritative voice. We see intimate identity between the shepherd and his sheep and the fact that he leads them. And as he leads them, they follow. And what a great promise this is, if you're in Christ. What a great promise. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. First of all, we see the authoritative voice. All of his sheep, without exception, all those that are his, given before the foundation of the earth, they will hear his effectual call. Effectual means it's effective. Now, personally, I heard the call of salvation. I heard the call of the gospel, rather. I heard the general call of the gospel numerous times throughout my life. And I went the other way. There was one day, one hour, and one moment where that same general call now became an effectual call. It had an effect on my life, and it transformed me, and it caused me to repent. He granted me the ability to believe. My eyes were open. I heard his voice for the first time and was able to follow. That's grace. And if you're in Christ, whether you believe that or not, that's the reality of what happened, according to Scripture. His call was effectual in transforming you, enabling you. Now, Jesus has already made this explicitly clear. If you look at verse 3, chapter 10, to him the doorkeeper opens. This is the, this is the general fold, which was in any village or town. Many shepherds went in. They left their flocks there. And that fold represents Judaism. And the great shepherd comes and he calls his select flock out of the fold of Judaism. And he says this. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And then in verse 4, second part, it says, And the sheep follow him and they know his voice. It's a guarantee that they hear and they follow. They hear and they heed. If you heard the effectual call of the great shepherd, you heed his voice. Amen? If you don't heed his voice in obedience, you haven't heard the call. So all of God's sheep, predestined, chosen, as Ephesians says, before the foundation of the earth, they will hear that voice and they will follow. That's a guarantee. 
And you follow him today because of that. That's grace. Granting the sinner the capacity to hear. Glorious truth. This is the irresistible call. This is the call that enables the deaf to hear, the blind to see. Great illustration of this, this great truth in Ephesians chapter 2. Before you were in Christ, you and I were what? Not sick with sin, but what? Dead. Ephesians 2, and you he made alive. Okay, if he made you alive, that means you're dead. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by what? Nature. We were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And here's that glorious word, but, but God. The word but cancels the preceding elements out. But God made you alive in Christ. A friend of mine came to visit me from Colorado this past week, and I've known him for a number of years, and I sat under his teaching. The first year I was a Christian, he led a Bible study, and I sat under his teaching. He's a great man of God. We were talking about this very verse, just that beautiful word, but. And he says, you know what? It's like when I was in high school. And I had a very good friend of mine, female friend, and I wanted to be her boyfriend. I wanted her to be my own, and I wanted to date her, and I wanted her to be my girl. And I went to her and I said, you know what? I want you to be my girl. And she responded, you know what? I'm so blessed to know you. You're my best friend. I'll do anything for you. Next word, but. <laughs> Cancels everything out. The capacity to hear is due to the authority of the shepherd's voice. This is an authoritative call that draws the sinner out. It grants them life. Gracious gift. And the authority of the shepherd's voice is due to the gift of the Father. Verse 29, which we'll look at in a moment. This is a grace gift of the Father to the Son, His church. So you heard His call because you are His sheep. In eternity past, He chose you, and on that day, He called you, and you followed, and you will continue to follow. It's a guarantee. You'll never walk away. You can't walk away because you'll never want to walk away. Notice the intimacy here. His intimate identity. He says, I know them. I know my sheep. He knows them in a, in a cherished manner, in a personal manner, as Adam knew his wife and they bore a son. It doesn't get any more intimate than that. I know them. This is on the basis of a covenantal union. This is unbreakable. This union cannot be broken. There's no reneging. Impossible. So the ability to believe is a special gift. This is a gift of God granted to the sinner to know God. And in order to know God, he must first know you. Paul said that in Galatians when the Galatians were resorting to a legalistic mindset. He says in verse 9, chapter 4, Galatians, But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? You, know, you might say that, you know, I, choose, I chose to follow Jesus, and at one time you chose to follow Jesus, but the only reason you chose to follow Jesus is because he in eternity past chose you. John 6, 44. You may say, I love the Savior, and indeed, if you're a Christian, you love the Savior, and the reason you love the Savior is because he first loved you. We love him only because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. So you were called and you've heard because he knows you and he's made himself known to you. That is intimate, personal involvement. This truth was made clear back in verse 14. I know my sheep and am known by my what? By my own. Which means that not all are his. He's known by his own and he knows his own. 
You know, for those of you that have children, I know many of you who have children, and I know your children. I know your children, but I do not know your children as I know my own children. Amen? I know my children in a very personal, intimate manner. I know my children with affection. I know them with intimacy. I know them with a dedication, and I know them with an unbreakable union. Regardless of where my kids go or what my kids do, they're mine. Unbreakable. Biologically, they're mine. They were born mine. They will always be mine. But not so with your children. I can love your children, but I certainly don't love them like I love my children. Amen? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, the church, that we should be called children of God. That's a personal, intimate love. Amen? That's a different kind of love. Rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in that. So, once his sheep have been made to hear, and you hear only because he, he enables you to hear, they follow. And once they follow, they will always follow. That's a guarantee. They will never walk away. You know, many people claim, well, I was a Christian for three years, and I just gave it up. It's not possible. They will not, anyone who's a true believer, they will not, and they cannot follow another belief system, another voice. Never. If you walk away, guess what? We'll get to this in a bit. You never were. It's very important to understand that. True sheep continually hear the voice of the shepherd because he continually speaks to his sheep. Through what? You're not going to hear any voices in the room at night, brothers and sisters. God speaks to me very clearly. Very clearly. I can sit in my chair and I hear the voice of God. Do you know that? But it's never without this in my hand. And if I don't have it in my hand, it's by memory of the written word that he speaks into my heart. That's how you hear God. And you have a desire to hear him and you have a desire to follow him according to his word. Notice there's a guarantee here. They will hear, that's a guarantee. Guaranteed they will hear and they what? They will follow. They will follow. So, the sheep that belong to the flock of Jesus Christ are characterized by the recognition they have for the shepherd as well as allegiance to the shepherd and an obedient desire to follow the shepherd according to his word. That's what identifies the flock of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Does your life prove allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does your life bear fruit of someone who abides in Christ, desires to abide in Christ? You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. But is there a desire there? Is there a willful desire because he's transformed your will to be a follower of his, to do that which is his will according to the word of God? Then you can rejoice. You can be exceedingly glad. And when doubts come, you need to resort to leaning on these verses of Scripture. Do you love the body? Do you love the brethren? I've met Christians who, you know, they don't go to church. Well, they say they're Christians. I say, you're in Christ? Well, I sure am. Why don't you go to church? Because I don't like Christians. They bug me. Now, according to Scripture, I can say to him, then, you're not a believer. The Bible says if you don't love abiding in the word of Christ, 1 John 3.10, and you don't love the brethren, you're not saved, says the Lord. If you love the brethren, and you love the word of God, and you have a desire to uphold the word of God, though you may fall, though you may stumble, when you doubt, lean on the promises. The voice of the great shepherd, the intimacy he has with you, and the desire he has to lead you, and the fact of the matter is he will always lead you and you will follow him. So get up and get back on track. Amen? Be assured of your salvation. So, as led by the resident power of the Holy Spirit, those sheep who follow, they belong they cannot and they will not follow another. You will not be led astray by a false teacher, a false prophet, or any false religious system. It's impossible. His spirit bears witness with your spirit, with my spirit, that we are children of God. You will see false shepherds a mile away. 
The more of this you have in you, the more easy it is to identify false teaching. Amen? Come on. It's been said that he, the great shepherd, is the voice of many waters that drown out all other misleading voices. You will not be misled. If you're in Christ, it's impossible. Notice next, verse 28. And, and I give them eternal life. What kind of life? Eternal life. That they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now notice this. There's an eternal union here of quantity and quality. You have a promise of preservation after death and the promise of protection here and now. You'll never perish eternally and you will never be snatched out of his hand Excuse me, here and now. So here you have a quantitative and a qualitative union. I give them, notice this, I give them eternal life. Now, in quantity... The duration was set in eternity, and if the duration of your life in Christ was set in eternity past, it will never be lost here in time and space. It's impossible. If it was set in eternity, according to the preordained plan of God, you can't lose it here. It can't be taken from you. It's immediate. Notice, I give. I give them eternal life. See, you don't die and then receive eternal life. The moment one is born again, that's regeneration. The moment one is regenerated by the Spirit of God, which is a gift of God, that's why Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. To be born again means to be born from above. When the Spirit of God transforms your life, at that moment, you receive eternal life. We should all be smiling at this point. Come on. This is glorious truth. This is deep, rich, ever-assuring truth. It's the possession of the true believer forever and ever and ever. The possession of eternal life because you're possessed by, you're owned by, you're gripped by the eternal one. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. Jesus Christ. So eternal security is not determined by a place. It's determined and provided by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in and through him alone. He's living and he's active. Notice these promises, John 3, 15. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son, what? Has everlasting life. John five twenty four. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me, what? has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment and has passed from death to life. Spiritual life. The Ephesians 2 death. You've passed. John 6.47 Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. If you can lose salvation, which is the ultimate oxymoron, by the way, think about it. Everlasting life. Well, I lost it. And it's not everlasting. It's very simple. It's eternal life. If you can lose it, quote unquote, you never had it. Anyone who apostatizes, and to apostatize means to walk away. Anyone who apostatizes the faith, they never had it. Because when Christ moves in, he never moves out. This is what John the Apostle in the early church faced. There were teachers, false teachers who went out from among them. They moved out. They apostatized. Momentary enthusiasm for Christ. You know, Jesus talked about a sower went out and he sowed seeds, right? The seed represents the word. The seed is always good because it is the word. Some of it's snatched and taken away by the birds. That represents the devil. It just never enters in. Some seed fell upon stony soil. It sprouted up quick. There was great enthusiasm there. Yes, I'll take the ticket out of hell. I want to love Jesus. He sounds good to me. But as soon as the sun came out, it scorches it. As soon as there's trials, as soon as you're persecuted for the faith, it withers and it dies. It never was. There's others that was thrown out and it grew up and it was choked out by the thorns and the thistles. And that represents a love for the world system, a love for money, a love for riches, a love for fame, a love for fortune, whatever. It never was. But that which fell on good soil reproduced somewhat. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But it reproduced something. If someone's alarm is going off. 
So, people are not numbered among his sheep simply because they make a verbal profession of faith. Now, there's many churches gathered today, and within the church you have many kinds. You have wheat, which are true believers, along with the what? Tares. You have chaff, you have tares. So, the invisible church is made up of a mixed body. Some with true faith, others with just a mere verbal profession of faith. Jesus referred to the invisible kingdom. Is some one would go out and drop a net in the ocean and drag in all kinds of fish. And he said this, Matthew thirteen forty seven: The kingdom of heaven is like a, like a dragnet that was cast into the sea, and it gathered some of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore. They sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away, so it will be at the end of the age. So just as a net cast out by fishermen catches many kinds of fish, so the church gathering brings in many kinds of people. True sheep and goats. Someone who's a sheep can never become a goat again. Never. Because they were never a goat in the first place. But the goats, or the apparent goats, hopefully will become sheep or it would be revealed that they were sheep chosen before the foundation of the earth. But you bring in all kinds. Those that are, they have eternal life. You have it. You, you own it because it's a gift. You also have it in quality. That's the quantity, now the quality. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I come that they may have life and that they may have it more what? Abundantly. This means above measure. Beyond necessity. A great surplus. More than enough. You have it now. This is not to be misunderstood with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know, Jesus wants you driving a Mercedes-Benz and, you know, having a house in every continent and a jet. Not to be confused with that. Yes, God does provide materially for his own, but this kind of blessing is a spiritual blessing above measure. This is Ephesians 1.3. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When you get some time, we don't have time here. Later on, read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In Greek, the, the, the verse, verse 3 all the way through 14 is just one long run-on sentence. And just read that glorious passage and all the blessings that you have in Christ already. That should settle your soul. Notice also the promise of preservation after death. Verse 28, they shall never perish. Now, to perish is to receive God's final and eternal judgment. Okay? What perish does not mean is annihilation. Some people believe it will just be annihilated. Those who aren't in Christ, you'll be annihilated. You, you, you become extinct. Wrong. Wrong. To perish means to be expelled from the presence of God's love, from His mercy, and from His grace, only to face God in hell forever, which is to face His wrath. And yes, God is in hell. What? God is omnipresent, amen? Those in hell will face the wrath of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Psalm 139.7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I send into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. In Revelation 14.10, They who take the mark of the beast, they who reject Christ, they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. How long is that? Forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. Last week I quoted Bishop Preston who teaches that hell is not forever and ever. Hell is forever and ever. Oh, but not so for his sheep. You will never perish. You will never Taste the flames of fiery torment of the wrath of the Lamb. Ever. You will never perish. Rest in that truth. They shall never perish, Jesus said. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting what? Life. Quantity and quality. Eternal life.
Notice, they are also given the promise of protection here and now. Neither, Jesus said, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So here we see the protection from outside forces. False teachings, false philosophies, things of that nature. There's no false teacher. There is no worldly philosophy. There's no world system. There's no temptation. There's no evil. There's no devil. There's no demon. No one, no created force whatsoever can snatch you, a child of God, his sheep out of the shepherd's hand. It's impossible. Never. Never. Amen. Whoever said amen? Amen. Man, that's rich. You'll never perish. You'll never be snatched out of his hand. You know, a guy used to argue with me at this point. I had this friend who believed, you know, you could lose your salvation. This used to drive me up a wall. No matter how much text you bring to the guy, he would say this, yeah, but. But I can choose to walk away from his hand. That's what he would say. If you can go out of it, you were never in it. Again, if you can go out of it, you were never in it. This is what occurred, as I said earlier, to the false prophets. The Apostle John's day, the early church, he simply said this in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. Next word. But. But they were not of us. For, notice, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest, it might be revealed that none of them, which of them? None of them were of us. Of who? Of the church. Christ's sheep. His followers. The church. Judas went out from the Last Supper because he was never a true disciple. Did he look like it? He looked like it. Jesus knew he was a fraud. Jesus said, one of you is the devil. So there's no created finite being that is able to walk out from the grip of the almighty creator. There's no created force that can open his grip. There's no created force that can outpower his grip. You can't outpower, outgrip God. You can't outgrip the Savior. And you're in his hand. You can't squeeze your way out of that. Can you imagine? That is, that's arrogant, actually. That's arrogance. Well, I can squeeze myself up from the grip of God. If you have salvation, your desire is to serve the Creator. Yes, you struggle. And, and yes, w just your thought life alone perhaps grieves you because you grieve the Holy Spirit and you know you're grieving God versus grieve just because you got caught. There's a difference there. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow produces what? Salvation. Repentance leading to salvation. Worldly sorrow produces death. If you have a godly sorrow that you've grieved the Holy Spirit who indwells you, that's a sign of salvation. Rejoice and lean on these promises. You can't push yourself out of His hand. 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because He who is in you is greater than He that is in the world. Again, no true sheep can ever become a goat. Now, supposed sheep might eventually be, and they will be eventually exposed as being a goat. Though they walked around in sheep's clothing for some time. But believer, you're in his hand, never to be snatched away. And the reason is in the next verse. And if you ever doubt, remember this next verse. Look at it. Verse 29. My father... My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You're placed in the hand of the Son by the Father in eternity past, given by God's sovereign grace and you're also held by His sovereign grace. Those who He justified, He will also what? Sanctify. And one day, glorify. It's good as done. So what can separate you from that love, brothers and sisters? Look at Romans 8. Verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor what? Any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because you don't hold Him in salvation. 
He holds you. He holds you. You'll never desire to walk away if you're His. There'll never be that desire to walk away. You might desire to listen to your own sinful carnal pleasures, but you know what He'll do? Because He loves you? He begins with conviction. This is the process of chastening. He begins with conviction. Conviction within. You're convicted over that sin. And if you remain in that sin, He chastens you. And many times, many times the consequences of our sin become the instruments of His wrath to discipline us with. Because He loves you and He chastens those He what? Loves. Intimate involvement. Colossians 3.3 3 says, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why? Next verse. Verse 30. I and my Father are what? We're one. This is double protection. You double bag something? This is greater than double bagging anything. This is double protection. I and the Father. What, when he says, I and the Father, what this does is this maintains the separate individuality of the two persons of the Godhead. Notice here, the pronoun one is in the neuter form, and it emphasizes unity of nature and essence. Okay? We believe in one God. We are monotheistic. We serve one God manifest in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're one in essence, they're one in nature, they're all divine, and they all operate in a different office, so to speak. They're one in essence, they're one in equality, they're one in purpose, they have one mission, they have one goal, they have one work, they have one venture. I and my Father are one. Now, there's a movement called the Pentecostal Oneness Movement. And they teach modalism. This is great error. What modalism teaches is that, yes, God is one, but God operates in three separate modes. That God operates as God the Father, so he puts on his God the Father hat. And then when he has to go to work as God the Son, he'll put that on the rack and grab God the Son hat, go do his work there. And then he'll do his work of God the Holy Spirit as he puts on that hat, so he jumps from mode to mode to mode. He jumps from God the Father, God the Son, to God the Holy Spirit. That's error. That's heresy. One God, three persons, same in essence, and nature. John 17, 23. It says, In the glory, Jesus said, which you gave me in the high priestly prayer, which you gave me, I have given them, his disciples, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That's you, Christian. You're as much one with Jesus Christ as he is one with the Father. Do you realize that? You're one just as he is one. Never to, be, never to perish, never to go to hell, never to be snatched out of his hand, never to be misled, never to be fooled, never to be duped, never to be able to walk away. You'll never want to. Never want to. For those of you who sit here this morning, and this is all news to you, meaning that you for some time profess Jesus Christ with your mouth alone and your life in no way whatsoever reflect someone who's a true child of God. In other words, born again, I say this, you must be born again. It's the supernatural work of God. To be born again, you cannot perform that act. That is a miraculous act of God. You must cry out for His mercy. You must confess you're a sinner. You must ask Him to forgive you. You must repent of your sin and you must bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord. You must be born again. George Whitfield the great evangelist and preacher, was asked, quote, Why do you keep preaching you must be born again? And he answered, The reason is because you must be born again. I preach you must be born again constantly because you must be born again. And it's the Spirit of God that does the work. I'm not going to try to get you to, you know, jump through hoops. You must fall before Christ if you're not in Christ. Beg for His mercy. And brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice that you're in Christ. That you'll never be lost. You will never perish. You will never be snatched from His hand. You can rejoice in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is the preservation of the saints of Almighty God. Two sides to the same coin. Perseverance, the preservation of the saints... 
God's work, and the perseverance of the saints. Those that are in Christ will persevere, and you must persevere. I must persevere. You know why? Because you've been enabled to persevere. Now, Paul said this as I get ready to close here. Philippians chapter 2. Here's the command. Verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and what? Trembling. Meaning, fear and trembling means this, to have a reverent awe and respect for Almighty God. Okay, with a healthy fear of God. Not this, brothers and sisters, not a paranoid fear of God. A healthy fear, awe, reverence for Almighty God. Fear of offending Him. That's a healthy fear. When you offend Him, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, what do you do? You confess your sins and He's faithful and just to what? To forgive you and to cleanse you and you move on. You get up and you move on. That's the throne of grace. So, Paul here, he clearly recognized that the faithful working out of the believer's fruit of salvation is enabled by God's prior work in eternity past. Look what he says. He adds verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for your, his rather, good pleasure. So the conjunction there, the word for or since, indicates that because God has completed the work, therefore redeemed men and women are able to work out their salvation. We're called to work out what Christ has already what? Worked in. Because you've been enabled to do so. What a grace gift. Never to be snatched, never to perish, never to be fooled, never to be misled. You're His. Because you've heard His voice, And because you've heard his voice, you follow him. He leads you. He has an intimate involvement with you. Bruce Demarest comments on making the distinction here between God's preservation and the believer's perseverance. And he says this, quote, For purposes of analysis, they may be considered separately. But in truth and in life, they are one. God faithfully and powerfully preserves genuine believers. But the latter must persevere with the strength that God provides. In short, Christians persevere by virtue of God's effectual preservation. End quote. You'll desire it. You'll desire it. Now, brothers and sisters, you well may lose your course, right? You may get off track, you may fall into sin. You will fail. You will be disappointed because you disappointed your Savior. It's a guarantee. It's going to happen. But rather than listen to the desires of our sinful-mindedness, we must begin and we must continue to listen to the Good Shepherd who's given us His instruction. In other words, look, When you do listen to your carnal desires and you fall, as it's been said and it's been well said, you may fall on board as a believer, but you'll never fall what? Overboard. You can't because you're his. It's just like the ark that was lifted up. Who closed the door? Did Noah? Come on, boys. Let's get the ropes. No, who closed the door? God closed the door. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He gave you an engagement ring. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's the promissory note. It's a guaranteed fact that you will reach the finish line. Amen? Rejoice in that. I close with this. J.C. Ryle. Quote, Weak as they are, they will be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they are, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier. And none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. End quote. Ever. Amen? Please rejoice in that. Please memorize that passage of Scripture so that when you doubt or you're discouraged, you'll lean on that truth. And if you're not in Christ and it's been revealed to your heart this morning that you're not, again, 
you must be born again. You must repent. Turn from your sinful life, turn from your sinful self, and you must turn to Christ and embrace him and surrender to him. Follow him, and you shall be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your preordained plan of salvation. We thank you that it was, for most of us, when we least expected it, that you invaded our lives, that you intruded upon our sinful, rebellious condition, and in the midst of our lostness and deadness and deafness and blindness, you gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of stone that was replaced with a heart of flesh, all according to the promises of Scripture. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for in whom we are one, just as he is one with you. We thank you for your church, that you are the head of that church. We thank you that no one in Christ will ever perish. And I pray for these dear people that they would rest assured in the facts of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. That those who doubt this morning, that those who struggle with such discouraging thoughts would be encouraged as, as the days before us come and the weeks come, that there'll be a deepening foundation of truth that they can stand on firmly, shotting their feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, knowing that they can stand firm on the truth of the gospel. To take up the helmet of salvation when doubts and discouragements come, to guard their heart, to guard their mind, to guard their emotions, Lord, from the trials of life. Lord, I pray that they would rest assured that they are in you and you in them to experience the victories and the glorious gifts of eternal life that have been wrought in us so that your name, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, would be glorified, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.